This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Kareem Fawaz. Kareem, how are you? Hey, Hill. Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Uh, many of uh, the listeners will recognize your, your voice. And, and uh, for those who want to reach out to, to learn more about what we're doing and hear more about the conversation, please do so through energysense at ihsmarket.com. That's the podcast title at ihsmarket.com. Uh, and Kareem and I are here today to talk about oil markets. And this is on the back of, of a recent uh, report that Kareem and the team put out looking at global oil markets and, and the real shift, I was going to say in, in demand, but I would say in everything that, that has really taken place over the past quarter on the back of uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now oil is what, $100, $105 or something. I think it's up another 3% today. Yeah. 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 And uh, I think the, the, the report begins with a pretty eye-catching phrase that, that effectively puts this on the order of huge, historically significant shocks or shifts in oil markets. Um, can, can you help anchor kind of where we are um, and, and why this time, I'll say this time is different? wonder if it really ever is. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the point we tried to make in this report is kind of what's happening now is by far one of the more significant episodes in, in oil market history, not just in terms of the short-term uncertainty that we're seeing in terms of supply-demand balances, prices, and how this market is going to balance itself in the next six to nine months, but also kind of the severity of the shifts that are happening across the industry in terms of phasing out Russian energy from uh, from European consumption, both gas and oil, the remapping of the global oil trade, the change in the relationship between major suppliers and how that's feeding back through to demand and how much demand consumers are taking over the kind of task that was traditionally held by producers or in the past of managing the market. And by that, I mean what we've seen, and we can talk a bit about it when we talk about kind of market intervention, which is a big theme of our report, in terms of SPR releases, in terms of embargoes, in terms of we're talking about multi-million barrels a day swings in the market that threaten to really change the way we think about oil markets, not just for the short term, but for the next decade, if not more. And I want to try to go through this. So we've done this several times. We've often had Raul Reed on there, and we've spent a lot of time talking about the U.S. and about the U.S. shale yeah. sector, which has really dominated oil markets conversation almost for the past 10 years or so. And I challenge us to have this conversation without talking about the U.S. supplier that I think for all intents and purposes, we can expect to stay on the sideline for the next several months. So if we accept that as true, what are the things that we're paying attention to no, that's a, that's a that's a really good point. I mean, basically, this marks if you if you think about the COVID crisis and the past three years, it's been a pretty extraordinary time. I mean, we've had a number of these podcasts over the past couple of years, and every single quarter there's something happening that's kind of out of the realm of normal market events. There's something to factor in to think about. But I think what's happening now is, and 
back to your issue, we've we've we're on the other side of a decade, more or less, which was kind of the shale decade, this decade of hyperdrived US upstream activity, depressed international activity, and and you had this kind of constant cycle of if you can solve the equation for how much US supply is going to grow in the next 12 months, you can get a good feel for whether prices should be higher or lower, but all within an environment which was a, ba- a price band defined by that shale reactivity, which was somewhere around, call it 50 to 60 or 45 to 65, if you want to be a bit more generous in terms of the bounds over time of that range over the past decade, uh, especially post-2014. Now we're in an environment where U.S. supply, at least for 2022, is largely set. You have companies that have come out. With, so we will see growth from the U.S. this year. So contrary to some narratives out there, it will the U.S. system will be growing again. Uh, we are seeing it in terms of activity. We're seeing it in what the companies are saying. But to your point, even though over the past quarter, the price environment has changed dramatically, the physical environment has gotten a lot tighter, we don't expect to see a meaningful reaction from the U.S. or the U.S. saving the day in 2022. We can discuss it in 2023 because I think it will play a role again. I don't think the U.S. growth engine is dormant in perpetuity. I think in these prices, it will become a component of the conversation. But to your point, for the next nine months here through the end of this year and early next year, the market is going to have to figure out a way to balance itself without getting that helping hand from the U.S. shale sector. And so as we look at that that balance, and so so there's an image I think that all of us have seen who've been following energy markets for a while where it's you know effectively a triangle, where it is a triangle with energy security at one end, affordability at the other end, and environmental concerns at the other end. So so, so those three points where, where you're trying to kind of balance the ball in the middle of those three competing agendas. I guess are you that we've been kind of that the ball's been closer to the affordability corner of that triangle, at least post 2016 with the environmental side really rising in prominence going into this year as ESG concerns were driving investment away from the oil sector. And now it seems energy security seems to be pulling that ball to that corner. Is is that a safe way to look at things? Yeah, I think energy, it's fair to say energy security is back with a vengeance. And the reason for that is energy security depends in large part to the perception of abundance or scarcity of the specific resource in the market. And what we've gone through in this shale decade we were talking about was, above all else, a perceived period of energy abundance. And is that there, there is plenty of oil available that will be unlocked the moment prices clear a specific threshold. We have inventories above historical averages. We have plenty of supply where we need it, uh, and we know how to find it. And what's happened over the past year and a half or so is kind of the psychology of the market has clearly started transitioning even before the invasion. Uh, the Russian invasion had been transitioning from this notion of abundance to scarcity, partly because of the transformation of the shale sector, partly because of the reality of tightening physical markets, erosion of capacity, and kind of drawdown of global inventories. But the bottom line was, as this invasion happened, we were already in a market that was primed for energy security to make a comeback. And what happened in the past two months has been everything has been turbocharged. Suddenly you had one of the primary arteries of oil in the global oil market, which is Russian exports into Europe, that is now suddenly on the table and potentially being phased out by the end of the year. Russian production and exports more generally both for crude and refined products is suddenly 
at risk, and this is one of the three largest producers in the world and largest uh, two largest exporters in the world. And you need to figure out, you know, how this whole equation is going to to work out. And it's difficult in the short term to see it as anything but a crisis of energy security. And that's kind of in part why we've seen such significant levels of intervention from consuming countries, more so than, any, than at any point in the past from the U.S., from the, from the IEA, in terms of releasing oil on the market, trying to be more interventionist in, in policy, is because this is a pretty critical moment. And the other thing is about energy security is inflation and the way inflation becomes a real concern, both economically and politically for most governments and most countries where uh, in these types of environments. And these two issues, energy security and the fight against to try to cap inflation, have become inter, kind of interwoven to some extent since last fall, especially in the U.S. So, and, and you introduced the consumer, and I want to go there before we do. The last big, shock's the wrong word, but the last big event seemed to be, maybe it was a shock, 2016, when, when OPEC plus rather than OPEC kind of came in uh, to, to, you know, common conversation. OPEC plus being OPEC plus Russia, Russia being the plus sign. Do we see that plus how are we looking at OPEC plus today? And I know what today, here it is, May 16th. T- yeah. Today may be different tomorrow, uh, but, but Saudi Arabia, the, the other thing that, that is interesting over the weekend, uh, you know, we read that Saudi Aramco is now the largest, uh, most valuable company in the world ahead of Apple. And so there's been this huge yeah. shift since 2016. So from the supplier's perspective, you know, with the U.S. on the sideline, what's kind of yeah. the strategic behavior of OPEC now? I mean, to take it kind of factually, the, the behavior to date from the OPEC group, OPEC plus group more generally, has been to stay on the sidelines since this invasion. They've been continuing to increase production on paper at the rate that they agreed to increase last fall, which is an increase of 400,000 barrels a day a month. Uh, in April, that or starting in May, that jumped to 430,000 barrels a day a month uh, because of kind of capacity uh, changes to kind of the baseline capacities used by a number of countries in terms of those increased quotas. But in practice, their actual increases in production for the past six months have been very low. Even even though on paper they could increase by north of 400,000 barrels a day, in practice, it has been much lower than that. The main thrust here has been that OPEC Plus and OPEC and the kind of key OPEC producers that t- still hold spare capacity. And in that in the current situation, that's primarily Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have been reluctant to actively contribute to this market and kind of to, to help ease this market environment, despite repeated requests from the US, both last fall and earlier this year. Uh, they've taken kind of the strategic de- decision to remain on the sidelines. As we think of it, it's kind of the way to think about this is, OPEC plus as a construct is facing probably its biggest test or its biggest challenge uh, since it was formed in late 2016, because suddenly you you are in a market environment where between the Gulf producers and the members of OPEC plus from the non-OPEC side, which is Russia, but also Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and a number of other countries, between those two sets of producers, you're accounting for roughly half or just under half of global crude production that is kind of co-helmed and co-led in an organization by Russia. And in the current geopolitical environment, that will become a problem, if not immediately over the medium to long term, it will become an issue that for a lot of consuming countries, chief among them the U.S., might not be a palatable uh, market environment. And that's going to be a part of the negotiation, I think, 
that's happening between the U.S. and Gulf producers in terms of how this relationship that has been in a difficult spot for the past year, I would say, uh, how it kind of goes from where it goes from here. And do we see them doing more, the members of the OPEC, doing more to, I, I guess, you know, emphasize their reliability and their reliance as a a partner in energy security, um, given the fraying into the plus side? I mean, what they've been doing so far is not necessarily touting their role in energy security. To some extent, they have been touting how oil prices have increased far less than other commodities, whether it's gas or coal or other kind of energy commodities, as a testament to, how, to the stabilizing force that they play in this market as a regulator. Uh, of some sort versus unregulated markets. But in practice, they've shown little kind of interest in terms of increasing production with an eye on these instabilities. If anything, they've made the political decision to dis- distance themselves from the crisis as uh, by marking this crisis as one of geopolitics and not mm-hmm. one of real supply emergency that warrants active management. Could that change? Certainly. Is it likely to change in the short term? Less so. I would say between now and the, and the end of the summer, we'll see as kind of uh, product, more production comes back and the, the current agreement is set to expire in September of 2022. When we get closer to that point, could there be a path to, to a more forceful increase or a more kind of significant increase? Potentially. But the broader question, and this is the question that the market is grappling with more broadly, is there objectively just isn't as much spare capacity mm-hmm. among the group as there as there was in the past. In terms of effective spare capacity that can be brought on and sustained for an extended period of time, there's probably 2 million barrels a day, maybe a bit above, slightly above that, largely concentrated between Saudi Arabia, the, the Emirates, and to some extent, Iraq and Kuwait, to a much lesser extent. But overall, you're talking about eroding spare capacity in an environment with low physical inventories in commercial tanks around the world. And now progressively lower SPR or strategic stocks because the U.S. is drawing down uh, fairly aggressively on its in its domestic SPR reserves to help ease market conditions for the next six months. And yeah, so, so that, that brings us back into the consumer conversation. So, so SPR or strategic petroleum reserve, the, the U.S. made a big announcement earlier this year, I guess, what, a couple weeks ago that they're going to put that much more oil into the market for the next six months um, and then I guess implicitly add a level of support as that's done to sell oil into a high price market um, and then start buying it more to, to refill after we get to that point. So, so that affects fair capacity. What are we seeing from other countries outside of the U.S. kind of managing things on the strategic reserve side of things? I mean, the rest of the IEA members in Europe and Asia, so Japan, South Korea, Australia, as well as the European members uh, of the IEA have all announced uh, spare capacity, spare uh, SPR releases. Combined, it accounts for roughly 60 million barrels versus the 180 million barrels that were announced by the U.S. in early April. Uh, So it's smaller, but obviously these are smaller markets with smaller SPR reserves. European reserves are more skewed towards refined products than crude, which is how they hold some of their their uh, strategic reserve requirements so that will be happening but but between the two of them so if you think about the us and the rest of the iea you're still talking about an increase of 180 plus 60 so 240 million barrels over the next six months and they've started to happen over the past couple of weeks we've started to see uh, spr releases in the us accelerate last week was a million barrels a day this week probably closer to 700,000 barrels a day but we are moving into 
an injection of supply to the market, which by normal oil market standards is fairly significant, north of a million barrels a day consistently for the next six months, could get as high as 1.2, 1.3 million barrels a day when the U.S. is releasing at a million barrels a day and the rest of the IEA members are all releasing at the same time. So you are seeing this massive injection. The challenge has been, uh, so the question kind of you might ask, and this is the question we're getting asked often is, if they're releasing this much oil, we're not seeing as much loss in terms of Russian crude exports. Loading still seem to be holding for the most part. So why are fuel prices you know, running mm-hmm. uh, riot, especially in the U.S. and Europe and global product markets? And the main challenge is we're facing multiple oil crises simultaneously. And the SPR releases have helped alleviate the crude crisis, the crude availability crisis. But they haven't resolved an issue, which is the refined product crunch that we're seeing around the world, and especially for middle distillates. And by middle distillates, I mean here gas, uh, gas oil and diesel, uh, as well as jet fuel. So that's kind of what we call middle distillate products, which have become extremely tight uh, as a result, both of tightening market conditions coming into this year and the extra tightening force, which has come in the form of lower exports out of Russia of both refined products, finished refined products, and feedstocks that used to go into the refining systems in Europe and the US. So the net result of that has been a significant tightening of product markets. And the problem has been that crude releases and crude SPR releases, and even to some extent, this is the argument that OPEC has been making for the past couple of days, even incremental crude production from OPEC members cannot help solve that equation. That's really a refining it's a refining crunch that needs to be solved via increased refinery output. And that becomes a challenge because of capacity issues that we've seen form, especially in the Atlantic Basin. And is there any, if, if the refinery is the hangup uh, or, or the bottleneck, is there anything to be done about that? Or is it just, I mean, no one's going to build a refinery, maybe full stop, but nobody's going to expand it or build anything new anytime Correct. soon. Correct. So your capacity is set to a large extent. The debate is whether a number of refiners around the world, especially in Europe and North America, have shut down refineries over the past several years. Since 2020, globally, we've shut down roughly 3 million barrels a day of capacity. Uh, of that, around the 1.8 million barrels a day is in the Atlantic Basin. There is still another 1.2 million barrels a day that has been announced as shutting down. The, the debate is whether those shutdowns that were slated for 2022, 2023, uh, get pushed out further to kind of help meet this shortfall. But the reality is, your question is exactly right. You're not going to get capacity relief in the short term, especially in the markets we're talking about from from new capacity. You will see capacity increases in the rest of the world, especially in the Middle East. There's a major refinery coming on in Kuwait uh, later this year and a number of refineries coming out of China. But I think there's two key, key issues here. In the case of the Kuwait refineries, uh, of the Kuwait refinery, it will take time. This is a massive refinery, 600 plus KBD. So that'll take a number of months for it to be up and running and exporting products into the market. So that relief is going to be delayed. On the Asian refinery capacity additions, largely in China, it becomes a political discussion, which is, around how much China wants to allow its refiners to export. And over the past six months, really since last fall, more so than probably closer to nine months, there has been a clear directive to hinder product exports rather than enable them. 
And that's been a big issue for the global refining market because unintentionally, but as a result of the shutdowns and capacity we've seen in Europe, in the US, in North, in North Asia, in Japan, South Korea, et cetera, as a result of those capacity closures, a lot of the spare refining capacity, as you as we try to think as we think about it in, on the supply side in Saudi Arabia and mm-hmm. the UAE, in the refining market, a lot of the spare capacity has now become concentrated in China. And to the extent that China hinders that transmission between that refining market and the rest of the world, it means we are stuck in an environment where it is very likely that you can't find a supply side solution to this issue, especially in the next three to four months. And when I say that, what I really mean is if it doesn't solve itself through supply, it's going to have to solve itself through demand. And when it, the two ways it can solve itself through demand are either via price elasticity, basically demand starts to erode because inflation and high prices both from two sides kind of impede demand directly by become by kind of uh, pricing out certain certain types of consumption discretionary driving discretionary consumption of certain of certain fuels tra- air travel or through negative economic feed throughs basically where inflation translates into lower economic activity transfer, translates into lower economic growth which then hinders demand that's kind of your first line of demand erosion. The second way, which is much more devastating, and, and we're starting to see signs of this happening, is if you can't solve it, if it doesn't solve itself via organic demand loss, the way I was describing it, mm-hmm. it's going to have to happen through a process that's really supply-induced demand loss. Effectively, what it means is via shortages. So the inability to secure refined products in some markets getting priced out can't secure the cargo of diesel out of the U.S. Gulf Coast or Northwest Europe, gasoline, not being able to make it to market. And some markets get starved that way and you start to see shortages at truck stops or or gas stations. We start to see reports around Africa, uh, South Africa, a few other places, uh, Latin America a bit, North America. Even in the U.S., we're starting to see signs of localized shortages. And that's kind of the way this plays out if it do, if it can't solve, solve itself through supply. So on the on on the first kind of element, it seemed to be more cyclical and you know consumers changing their behavior. Um, and you know I was reading some articles this weekend about airlines and and airline prices are up something like fifteen percent over the past month or something expected to be up another ten percent or you know those numbers might be wrong, but but that's the general idea. And the the airline execs are saying nobody's nobody's changing their behavior. You know, all the seats are filled. We can keep raising prices. And that seems to be true across a lot of industries. Mm-hmm. So are we seeing any change and we're entering or if not having entered, I guess we're what, 15 days away from the, the Memorial Day and summer driving season. Have we yeah. seen anything in real time start to change in terms of the, the consumer, either domestically U.S. Or, or more broadly? Anything we've seen so far is more in the realm of it's kind of demand growth erosion, more so than necessarily demand destruction, the way you think of it. It's basically, I mean, as we look at global demand this year, we have revised lower our demand growth expectations significantly over the past, uh, since last quarter by around north of 1.3, 1.4 million barrels a day. A lot of that is lower growth in the next two quarters than we expected sequentially. So we expected global demand to accelerate significantly in the second and third quarters. You've saved some of that sequential growth, but you haven't necessarily reversed in a meaningful way. I would say in terms of destruction, we haven't seen the types of demand losses that would help stabilize this market. If anything, 
the measures that have been adopted by a number of governments around the world have been trying to shield consumers from high prices, whether it's tax cuts, tax holidays, subsidies, price caps, name it, go across Europe or uh, or elsewhere in the world. Even in the U.S., there have been talks around around tax mm-hmm. uh, tax cuts for uh, for retail fuels. Uh, so the measures that governments have been taking have been trying to shield consumers and by virtue of that shield demand, which is not going to help ex- kind of uh, this process of rebalancing the market. And the result of that has been prices getting into a, a higher and higher frenzy. And you talk about summer driving season, and this is going to become a real issue because gasoline demand and gasoline prices uh, had been relatively shielded since the start of the Russia invasion from what's been happening, what I've been talking about in refining. Ga- Russia is not a major supplier of gasoline to the global market, so it's not necessarily uh, as big an issue as diesel and kind of feedstock markets as it is in gasoline. Uh, but what we're seeing now is refiners are being incentivized through the high margins to chase after higher refined margins or cracks for uh, metal distillates. And, and by virtue of that, shifting yields away from gasoline as you get into the summer driving season, which is causing a lot of anxiety that that margin price strength we're seeing in middle distillates is, is, tra- is starting to transmit in a big way into gasoline. And if you look at this over May 16th today, today prices shot up. Uh, average U.S. gasoline prices. And that becomes a major issue for consumers because you can see it and you can feel it a lot more directly, even than diesel. So looking today, and maybe this is a good way to, to kind of wrap up, but we're sitting here at the beginning of the summer, you know, at, at least mid-May, that the, the consumer still looks pretty strong. A lot of question around supply security, around uh, Russia. I think there's less questions around the U.S. in terms of what the, the behavior of the shale sector is going to be. Uh, we, we haven't talked about Iran or we haven't talked about Venezuela, some of these other areas that, that are crude producers yeah. that are impacted by geopolitics. Um, yeah. What are the things we should watch uh, on, on either the demand or the supply side yeah. as we look to finish the year You know, and, and expect? I'll, I'll say I'll risk it and say that in the summer, you know, the, the die is pretty cast, that the demand is going to be high. People are going to be on airplanes. People are still driving. Maybe things start to change around September. Yeah, I mean, I, the problem is this is kind of your uh, your U, U.S.-based perspective kind of on the, on the cycle. The difference, I would say, is what's happening in China can change a lot of that seasonality mm-hmm. to a large extent. The lockdowns we're seeing have been a source of demand destruction. Uh, I was talking about it in the context of Europe and the U.S., but we're seeing in China is real kind of demand declines as a result of the shutdowns that, that are happening across a number of cities. Uh it isn't being transmitted into global refining markets because of this export issue I was talking about around Chinese product exports kind of being moving into the global market. And instead, a lot of the weakness is getting passed through the refi- into the domestic refining market. But if you think about China, I think it's probably a bipolar risk for markets in the short term, which is in the third quarter, there's probably more downside than upside that these issues that, that the country is dealing with in terms of containing COVID outbreaks and going very severely in in terms of containment and shutdowns and lockdowns whenever you see cases pop up means that there is a risk that China remains in this type of environment of stop and go uh, Mm -hmm. demand for the next several months, potentially helping ease to some extent, uh, especially for crude uh, global market conditions. On the flip side, if and when China does come back, which could be this fall, it could create a significant incremental pull on oil, both crude and refined products domestically. 
that would potentially kind of bridge some of this post-summer easing that we're hoping for as kind of go through the next three, five months. And that could potentially make for a much tighter end of the year than, uh, than people expect. Especially that the SPR releases we were talking about kind of run their course around October, November. That will be the six months mark. So that injection of oil is going to fade. And at that point, to bring it back to your question, which is that's where Iran starts to matter. As SPR releases fade, China potentially comes back uh, in force to the, into the global oil market. That's the point at which you'll need supply to to, to kind of pick up the baton from the from the SPR, and that's going to be, be a question about Iran. That's going to be a question about Saudi Arabia and the UAE and OPEC Plus beyond September of 2022, which was the date I mentioned earlier. It's going to be a question around uh, U.S. supply growth and whether it's accelerating. Even if you can change the trajectory of supply in a meaningful way in 2022, by the fall, you should have a fairly good sense of directionally growth momentum going into 2023. So all of these supply factors, which, you know, before the Russia invasion, the question we were asking ourselves was, if all of these things come at the same time, is there a risk we tip back into oversupply? Now, if anything, the debate is, will it be enough to manage what could be a significant disruption of Russian crude if Europe does go forward with a full embargo of crude and refined products by the end of this year or a quasi-full embargo of crude products by the end of this year? In that context, a lot of these supply nice-to-haves become must-haves. So Iran coming back was a nice-to-have component of the market you know, coming into this year. Now it's an issue of if Iranian oil doesn't come back into the market in the next six to nine months, it becomes an issue that will be very difficult to, to maneuver once China comes back to normal consumption behavior uh, and potentially Russia is... Uh, phased out of the market or the European market at the very least, and potentially kind of losses start mounting uh, at a global level. So it's a very difficult environment for markets to navigate, I would say. I would argue, I mean, since I've been following oil markets, it's probably the toughest market for us analysts, but also for investors in the space Mm -hmm. to think about, because most of the factors we've been talking about are kind of binary multi-million bills a day outcomes that depend largely on government decisions. So Europe is whether they can get a deal in terms of embargoing uh, Russian refined products and crude. SPR is U.S. and European and kind of IEA government decisions. Iran deal or no Iran deal. Saudi Arabia, UAE, do they increase? Don't they increase? China, do we let COVID run wild or do we keep locking down cities? Uh, All of these factors individually would be a topic we would spend most of our time in a normal year grappling over the trajectory. Is Iran coming back or not? Now you have to deal with five, six, seven of these factors at the same time. And the reality is the range of physical outcomes is just huge. I mean, it's it can swing five, six million barrels a day one way or another. We're talking about refined product prices we haven't seen in 15, 20 years since the kind of mid-2000s. A lot, there's a lot of I know since COVID, we've banished the world, the word unprecedented, but there's a lot of unprecedented, <laughs> there's a lot of unprecedented stuff happening, really. I mean, uh, so I think it's going to, it's going to mean volatility. It's going to mean uncertainty. It's going to mean this, and this market is going to keep trying to read the tea leaves on a consistent basis, to get any visibility on the trajectory uh, over the next three months, let alone the next five years. But the general feel, and go to take it back to your topic of scarcity, 
and the topic of energy security is there is a clear kind of wind of change in the market towards energy security and that prices are shifting into a more sustainably higher environment than we've been at any point in the last decade, at least mm-hmm. for oil. And that means the back end of the forward curve has started to creep up for the first time in years. So we're seeing long dated futures tra- trading now in the 75 to $80 range, whereas for most of the past seven, eight years, it was stuck sub $60. Uh, so you're starting to see that flow through. We do expect that to play out in CapEx. You're starting to see energy as a share of the S&P 500 finally kind of break its trend of endless declines or erosion over the past several years. It's it's jumped back to, I mean, still a very low number, but north of 4% of the S&P. So you are seeing a shift there, which I think is going to be stickier than just the short-term physical uncertainties we're talking about. I do think we're going to move into this cycle of uh, increased investment, increased focus uh, on all types of energy. So obviously, there's going to be questions around the medium to long-term demand trajectory. But in the short term, between high prices and this energy security mandate that's getting communicated directly and indirectly to companies, uh, you will see, I think, a significant response. It is really an, uh, a change in the cycle. It is. And it's uh, yeah, volatility seems to be the word all analysts are using, whether they're talking about the price of tech stocks, uh, the price of energy stocks, the price of oil. Uh, that, that, that there's, yeah. I guess, not there, there's not enough information to 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 be. Uh, or there's so many dependencies on a confident forecast right now that, that it's hard yeah. to hard to do much yeah. in, in any of the directions. Um, well, I, I think the. I mean, I guess what I'm hearing is we should be paying attention to demand over the next several months uh, as part of uh, as we're looking at the summer and then really start thinking about supply as we start looking yeah. into the fall. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly the way I would summarize. I would think look to demand the next three months because that's probably going to be the place where a lot of the balancing is forced to happen one way or another, uh, especially on the refined product side. And then beyond that is going to be the extent to which global supply starts to accelerate uh, tangibly and whether that's enough uh, of a shift in the supply function to reassure markets on a sustainable basis. Obviously, there's still an elephant in the room that we haven't talked about, which is basically what is the trajectory of Russia beyond the next six months or beyond the right. next nine months? I mean, is it I, you can build the case for Russia at eight million barrels a day five years from now, the same way you can build the case for Russia at ten and a half million barrels a day uh, five years from now. There's a lot of capacity uh, or kind of new source capacity that's now at risk as Western Western service sector companies have left. And for us analysts thinking about it, but also someone investing in this market, it's very difficult because that two and a half, three million barrels a day confidence interval for supply three, four years out, it can make a very big difference in terms of the market kind of environment, the level of supply you need, how much supply, you need, how, how much supply growth you need to incentivize, what type of inventory situation you're in. So I think the short term is, more than most can handle at this point, but I think that medium-term trajectory uh, is going to become a much bigger question uh, in months ahead as well. All right, well, that's a good place to leave it. Well, thank you, Kareem, and I uh, sure. look forward to picking this back up. Thanks. Thanks for having me. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. 
You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.